0: of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Take your Bibles and you're not going getting ready for this. Turn to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, we are doing something a little bit different, something I actually have never done before. I don't think quite like this, where I will preach a passage and a sermon that I have preached before we are um, switching genres this morning entirely from New Testament Epistle to Old Testament narrative. Um, we had planned to meet outdoors today uh, for food together and some time for fun and games, um, but we all know that a soggy picnic is not a good picnic, and so we will forego this time until next week, Lord willing, um, we'll meet the same place next week if possible Be on the lookout on our website and on Realm to see the final details. But for now, we will still plan to meet next Sunday at 11 a.m. at Munden Point Park. Um, We'd love for you to be there. Again, uh, just look for details on Realm. Now, this brings up a subject of our meeting indoors. Um, We had planned to announce this uh, briefly today in person at our picnic, um, but this will have to do. So I hope uh, you're listening, but of course, we will put this out in other ways as well. Um, Every time we cancel our Sunday uh, gathering, as Jordan even just said this morning, we all feel that little bit of, uh, this isn't quite right. And we have a building to be gathering in, but we realize because of some of our restrictions that we've chosen to abide by that we can't quite meet in there right now for this time without really doing some preparations and figuring out how it's going to go. And so I just want to take this time to remind you that we are considering that. But more than that, uh, we know the weather is continually changing. It will be colder and colder. And right now, the weather has proven to be unkind to us so far in the fall on Sundays. I don't know if the rest of the week just loves to be perfect. It's beautiful fall weather. Yesterday was beautiful summer weather. But uh, unfortunately, today it is gross and wet outside. So we're remembering that we need to make the transition in. So we know it's gonna change, the rain will keep us from gathering, and uh, we need to make some decisions. So with that being said, we are planning to begin meeting in our building, indoors for Sunday morning corporate worship, um, sometime in mid-November. We will get the exact date to you very soon, and we know that there are still some concerns about this, and we understand that. We're working out some final details, uh, making some preparations, but we look forward to being inside our building together once again soon. Uh, again, we will be getting some more details to you via Realm um, and uh, website by the end of the week so that we can plan and be prepared. And of course, uh, we will talk about it if, if the Lord allows us to meet at our picnic next week. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit more then so that we know what we are doing and it's not mayhem when we try to transition inside. So I just wanted you to know, get you that in your brains, thinking that through, not be caught off guard as we gear up now to head inside for indoor services uh, mid-November. Also, um, for the month of November and early December, this is something I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about. We will be having Thursday night's teaching series, a Thursday night teaching series throughout the month of November and into the beginning of December to talk through the attributes of God. Not all of them, but a few of them. Um, This is something that we haven't done up to this point, um, but we're really looking forward to this. We have a few of the men within our bodies that are not elders, uh, who will be doing some teaching along with me. I'll begin the things off, I'll kick it off at the beginning of November, and then we'll have a couple different guys uh, just teaching through the attributes of God Edifying us from the Scriptures, thinking deeply about theology and how we can be better servants and worshipers of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, just some of the uh, the, the details that will be in person, but it will also be um, it will be live streamed as well. So, if you can't make it because maybe you have kids and you can't get out on a Thursday night, you can still view it on um, on I think on YouTube is that's where we live stream it. Um, but we would love to have a few people that are able to make it out. It'll kind of take the setting of a course seminar in a sense that we will present for maybe about 20 to 30 minutes material uh, and then work through it together and then have questions afterwards where we'd love for your interactions to be thinking through these attributes of God with us. So that will begin on the Thursday night. November the 5th is the first Thursday night that we'll be starting. It will be from 7 to 8 p.m. here at the building be very simple. Um, it'll be communicated on Realm, and we'd ask that you'd RSVP just so we make sure we know who's in the building and be prepared for that as much as we can. So we're really looking forward to that. Uh, several men have stepped up and excited to have them teach and edify us as a body in that way. Okay, all that being said, let's open up to Joshua 2. And read together so if you if you're used to being in the other side of your bible this is on the left side of your bible all the way at the beginning it's after the pentateuch at the end of deuteronomy joshua we're going to read chapter 2 the whole thing so this will look a little different than we're used to but let me go ahead and read joshua 2 for us and then we will pray now this is going to be a little different because if you don't pay attention you're going to miss that this is a story this is a story you need to pay attention to all the different pieces here as we learn this narrative and what's going on. Joshua 2, verse one. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you as you've entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to me and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord on the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, His blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given us, given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Let's take a moment and pray. God, as we open your word, it is no accident, although it causes me sometimes to doubt if I'm doing the right thing, for us to be in Joshua this morning. I do not understand your ways exactly, Lord, but we try by your grace to trust you and to make wise decisions. We realize that this is an imperfect medium to, to be broadcasting this way in a live stream. And yet, God, we know that this is right for the sake of your glory and your grace as you teach us to trust you to move forward in obedience. But as we turn to the scriptures now, Lord, this isn't a cop-out. We know that it is your word that teaches us obedience, faith, your righteousness, and love. And so, God, I ask that you would put a holy weight on each of us now as we approach the text, not as something novel or cute to listen to, but, Lord, as the holy word of God that speaks to us so that we may respond in gladness and faith and obedience. This is a word from you, so we ask that you would help us to take it seriously and obey. Lord, grant us repentance and faith. I pray that you would save many, Lord, in our city and around the world for the sake of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for the gospel. And we ask this morning that you would teach us to live according to it. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we all love stories. We're very story-centered people. We're used to them in how we speak to one another. We tell them by analogy, how something is supposed to go by telling a quick story. All of our jokes usually have some sort of storyline that's communicating through it. And by this, we, of course, understand that it's a great medium for all of us to relay truth. And if you're like me, sometimes you want the straight facts. You want it simply, just give me the propositions. But other times, we love a good story. It takes time. It rolls along. It builds. It has intrigue, maybe. It has points of dynamic characters and others that stay the same. And through all of it, our emotions rise and fall with the different events that happen throughout it. In the end, we love stories because they help us understand our experience as image bearers of God in this human history and what God is doing. All these stories, then, are helpful to stick in our memories, to learn lessons, or just to enjoy different things. And some of us are avid readers simply because we love the process of good storytelling and experiencing it over and over again. We just can't help it. We love a good story. Some storytellers just tell a tale just for the sheer joy of the telling of the story. But a prudent author is always saying something with their story. They are using their story to make a point. The people of Israel have received the word to go over the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 1. Obviously, we're plopping down here in Joshua chapter 2, but in chapter 1, we had the order to go ahead, to move in. They're to go into the land that was sworn to their fathers. Their leader, Joshua, has heard direct communication from the Lord. He has called him to impossible task as a leader to follow the incredible leader, Moses who's coming out of the schools of Egypt from the grandeur of Pharaoh's house. And Joshua is supposed to be that leader now to take the people and lead them into conquest in the promised land. And when, when we say conquest, we mean that this land is still filled with people and they must be removed. Now, we're not talking about loading, up up on a tra- loading them up on a trains and shipping them outside of a certain vicinity. Let's make sure we understand what we're talking about. We're talking about wiping out entire people groups so that none of their heritage might live to propagate their people's line. I mean, this is really heavy stuff. God is calling the people of Israel to remove the Amorites, fierce and wicked enemies of Yahweh. He is calling Israel to destroy this people and take the land of Canaan against all odds you got to remember, Israel is no political or military powerhouse. They are emancipated slaves wandering around in the desert. And now God calls them at this time to obey and conquer the land. Joshua has begun to move forward. He has commanded the people to prepare to go over the Jordan River. He has secured the fidelity, if you remember, of the eastern tribes. And now the whole nation stands unified, ready to go into the land. And in his opening speech, God was very clear. There is only one way to prosperity, one key to making this endeavor a success. He says, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The Lord tells Joshua that the law cannot, it must not depart from his lips and that he must meditate on it day and night. This is all here in Joshua. And if Joshua, by extension, also the people then, will do this, they will have the presence of Yahweh, of God, and he will be to them good success on this mission that he has has told them to do. While the people are breaking down camp, preparing extra food, packing up their belongings. Joshua then, in this time, when we jump into chapter 2, sends in reconnaissance to understand what's going on. He sends in two spies into the land of Canaan. He tells them, view the land, especially Jericho. The two men, of course, cross the river. They enter the city. Now, if you're a spy, you know this. You're trying to do two main things. One is to get information, and two is to be undetected while doing so. That, that's what you're trying to do. When the spies go in, in this story, they believe the best thing that they can do is lodge at the house of a prostitute. They chose to lodge at the prostitute Rahab's house. Uh, this business uh, she runs is part hotel, um, part brothel. Um, no one looks at each other in their eyes while they're passing each other in the hallways. But a lot of information can be gained at a place like this. The spies knew that they could sneak into this hotel without too many questions about what they were doing, collect information and get out of there without too many questions being asked of them that they had to answer. There's only one problem here, though, in our story. Someone in the city is smarter than these spies, or at least they're better at their job than these spies are at their job. As the two spies enter the house of Rahab, the king's spies recognize that these guys aren't from Jericho and that they look like spies from Israel. They quickly report to the king, and the king immediately sends his guards to Rahab's house, demanding that she bring out these men of Israel so that they can probably be questioned, tortured, and most likely killed. Now, remember, Rahab is a prostitute, not a very honorable profession. She has no reason to get in any trouble with the law. She already has probably enough problems on her hands and it's likely that she has cooperated in scenarios like this before with the king's guards. So the guards in some way understand who she is. They probably have an unspoken covenant back and forth between each other in contract of how this is supposed to work. In some ways, the guards trust her. And as the guards ask to see all the guests in their rooms, this is normal protocol, Rahab complies but responds, you know, uh, yes, of course, take a look at where you want to, but I, I don't think it's going to be any good to you. See, I think I know the men who you're talking about, but I didn't know they were from Israel. They were just here, but when the city gate was about to close and and to go out and it was getting dark, they took off. Probably, though, if you hurry and leave right now, you have a good shot at catching them. Now, the guards, while still listening to Rahab, quickly search room one and room two and room three, the common area, the eating quarters, they find nothing. So they know their necks would be on the line if these supposed spies were to somehow evade them, to get out from them. So instead, what they decided to do, instead of risking losing them, they heed the words of Rahab and they go after him. They quickly rushed through the gate. They took off in hot pursuit after these spies who they were heading then towards the Jordan River. And as they left, the text notes this, I love, the gates of the city, the only regular point of entry, An exit slammed closed, shutting the intruders out and everyone else in. This is a problem for us. Back in Rahab's hotel, the dust settles a bit. We see kind of guests going back into their room after the disruption from these guards. And they're finally kind of settling back down. The lamp lights have been lowered. um, And then we see Rahab, after everyone's kind of back where they're going, go up the steps to her roof. As she emerges, she greets these two men quietly, men who have been honorable, who haven't taken advantage of her services. The moment these two men set foot in her establishment, she knew who they were. These were men of Israel. These were the two spies that Joshua had sent. And she had heard all about Israel. She she knew about Israel. Before the guards ever came into her house, she hid these spies. She took them to her roof and hid them in the stalks of the flax. She misled the guards and sent them on a wild goose chase to keep them from getting close to these Israelite spies. Get this, she saved these men. She delivered them from sure death. Now, why should Rahab do this? Why in the world would she put her own self at risk? Why would she risk her own neck for the sake of these two unknown Israelite spies? Uh, Harboring spies, if, if, if you know anything about this kind of intrigue, harboring spies is no joke. Punishable by death, no problem. Why would she be willing to commit treason? If these two spies were successful and Israel moved forward, it could mean the destruction of the city and therefore all of her own people. What did Rahab have to gain then? As Rahab greets these men among the flax, she has their gratitude and their respect, but she also has their attention, because something like this shouldn't happen. It's this time where we see why she is willing to put out her own neck on the line. Why is she willing to commit treason? She makes a speech for us here, and she says these words, starting in verse 9, "'I know that the Lord has given you the land.'" And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard of how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were, going, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house." and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brother and sisters, and all who will belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Can you imagine being a spy like these two guys? They are dumbfounded. They finally gain enough composure, though, to respond. They realize that this prostitute has acted faithfully that she has shown these men and all their kinsmen a committed, faithful act of love. Strangely, I was, I was thinking about this, that she actually fulfills Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. She's an imitator of God, and she loves in this way. She has saved their lives and delivered them from their enemies. They realize that she has acted as an agent of Yahweh, their God. How could Joshua's army ever rescue these two spies if they had found out that their their cover had been blown, and they're compromised? There's no way. They thought they're going in undetected, but immediately the guards were sent. How could they ever be delivered once they're that far in? Yahweh used a prostitute who has heard of this great Lord, the God of Israel, and he has decided to use her as an agent of his deliverance. It's not only deliverance for these two spies, although that's obviously the salvation that we see right in front of us. It is also the salvation of the deliverance of his people that's being represented here before us. The spies understand that Rahab is not just trying to save herself. Her speech has shown that the Lord has revealed himself to her and that she believes, she trusts, she places herself in the hands of the Lord, the one who is truly God in the heavens above but also in the earth beneath. Rahab has declared her faith in the one true God. And so the spies respond. They hear her cry of salvation and they say, yes, to the death, we give you our solemn promise. If you will be true to your word and not tell anyone about our actions here in the city, then when the Lord, Yahweh, gives us this land that he has promised he would, we will deal kindly with you. We will treat you and your family the same kind of committed, faithful love that you showed us. Now, the night is growing old, and the spies need to leave this city. Sooner or later, everyone's going to figure out that they'd been had. And eventually, they're going to come back and look to see if maybe they would still be at Rahab's house. There'll be another search of her premises. There's only one problem we can still hear the thundering sound, as we said before of the gates closing and slamming all of the people inside the city walls. It is at this point that Rahab again acts as an agent of Yahweh's deliverance. She pulls out a large rope. I don't, I don't know what she uses this rope for, but maybe she's done this before, I'm not quite exactly sure if it's a rendezvous point for all kinds of stuff, but she takes this rope out and tosses it out the window as a way of escape for these men. She throws it over the side of the roof, and in the quiet of the night, they can hear the rope flap against there, and they realize it is a way to get away from these people. Rahab has once again provided deliverance for these Israelite spies. And as the spies prepare to descend into the dark, Rahab instructs them to go into the hills for three days, lest they be caught by the guards, of course. They turn to her and assure her that, get this, if she perseveres, she will be saved. They give a final speech and instruction for when they come back. They assure her that they will be true to their word, They instruct her to put a scarlet cord in her window so the Israelite military will know which house is hers. They instruct her to gather all of her family, father, mother, brothers, sisters, all of her father's household to stay within her house so that they might be saved from the destruction that is about to come to Jericho. Anyone who is inside the house marked with the scarlet cord will be saved, but anyone outside, his blood will be on his own head. Lastly, they remind her that this is all contingent on her faithfulness to the oath that she has sworn, that she would not tell of the business of these men to anyone in the city. Rahab, being offered salvation from destruction, agrees to all their words. The spies climb down the rope, run to the hills, and remain there for three days. The pursuers, the guards of Jericho, were not able to find them, of course. And so the spies crossed back over the Jordan River and returned to finally do what they're supposed to do, deliver this news to Joshua. Now, can you imagine, Joshua, remember this. Can you imagine what he's about to expect? He was in their shoes, if you remember. He was one that went into the land to spy it out, to bring back report of what was going on. And here Joshua sits as these two men come back, holding his breath. Forty years prior, he had come back to give Moses the exact same type of report, but the other ten went back and declared their unbelief to dissuade the people to obey Yahweh and rather do what they felt better, which was a product of their fear. This is all in his head as he's waiting to see what's going to happen. Will they discourage the people to enter the land and how the strength of Jericho is too much for God? What would happen? Would this be a report, the same one that they got from Kadesh Barnea? Their report was simple. They were certainly details given about the city, about the walls, about the heart of their findings, though, all the different things that were going on. But the thing that gets recorded here is by far the most important. They were the words that Rahab had spoken to them. With joy, they tell Joshua, truly, The Lord has given all the land into your hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Joshua lets out, you can just kind of imagine, it's like this is a faithful, right answer, an answer of faith. These guys saw the badness and the difficulty and the strength of Jericho, and yet they believe. They hear the message of God through this prostitute Rahab, that he will hand them over to Israel, that God will be true to his promises. Yahweh had told them this would happen. It was Yahweh who said that Canaan was the land which he, God, was giving to them. It was Yahweh who said that no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Now the spies tell him that the inhabitants melt away before them. Do you see the irony there? No one can stand before you all the days. Inhabitants melt away. God has faithfully reminded them from the mouths of the Canaanites that his word is true. He has encouraged Joshua to move forward and reminded him that God's word could be trusted. This is a... This is a really awesome little story, really intriguing and fun. And you see all this thing that happens, all this stuff that happens. You got spies, you got intrigue, you got counterintelligence, you got a civilian, a prostitute no less, harboring spies. You got this daring scene, the use of a red cord going down the outside of a building. I mean, they didn't have grappling hooks, maybe the same way as we do, but I think that's what's going on here. We're seeing all this stuff on the edge, and we have deliverance of God's people by the hand of a prostitute. Now, that's enough as it is. That's that's good. What an awesome story. And it actually moves the narrative. You're like, whoa, I guess something is coming then that's going to kind of tell us how this all works out since the military is going to come back. But we need to recognize that Joshua, as a book, is actually a piece of literature. Chapter one happens. Chapter two happens. Chapter three happens. But why is chapter two, this little story about Rahab, included here? Back at the beginning, I mentioned, though, that a good author, a prudent storyteller, doesn't waste a good story, but rather uses it to communicate something. As, uh, again, if you're looking through Joshua, chapter 2 is actually like a big parenthesis. It's almost as though if you took chapter 2 out, you could read chapter 1 right into chapter 3. It wouldn't seem to mess with the narrative at all. When we pick up chapter 3, it's like nothing is happened, like chapter 2 didn't matter. What Joshua and the spies learn from chapter 2 doesn't have much bearing on what they do next in chapter 3. It will come up again though in chapter 6 once you get there, if you're reading along, when the walls come tumbling down. But even the way that they bring down the city really didn't have a lot to do with the intelligence of what Rahab had given them. So we have to ask ourselves as Bible readers, why did Joshua place chapter 2 here? What's his purpose in doing this? Brothers and sisters, chapter 2 is included here because Paul was right. He was telling the truth. The scriptures are to teach us, to reprove us, to correct our wrong thinking, and to train us in righteousness. The first thing I want to point out here is that Yahweh is a merciful God to all of humanity, not just national Israel. Here we have this woman, chapter 2, including this woman, the story that reminds us why we, you and I, unless you are a Jewish person, if you have have that bloodline, the rest of us are here being seen in chapter 2 as important to Yahweh. In the midst of coming destruction, we see here the mercy of God to all nations, kindred, tribes, and peoples incredible statement at the beginning here when it's all about personal and and corporate faithfulness of this people to the law of Moses to being good Jews and here the second chapter in we have Rahab not only someone from Jericho but a prostitute no less who is now recognizing who God is if you think about it she fits the bill for Ephesians 2 I'm just going to read a few verses see if this fits the bill Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Doesn't say, by being a Jew, you have been saved. No, by grace, Rahab, an undeserving recipient, receives the grace of this merciful and loving God. Rahab is not the first actor. She didn't come to this on her own. Ephesians 2 tells us that she was actually dead. She was a son or a daughter of disobedience, prepared for wrath because she did all things that she wanted to do. It is God who first reveals himself to Rahab. It is God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that before the destruction of the city of Jericho, God has shown her mercy to deliver her From judgment. I can kind of hear, I know this is not actually, but I can kind of hear in the lips of Rahab, the Psalm 36 from David, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind, Jericho, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Rahab's salvation is a clear reminder that God is merciful and specifically that his mercy extends to all nations. But that's not all. I believe that the story of Rahab was well known throughout Israel. It's no accident or fluke that Joshua included it here. In the big picture, it's important for us to see that this is a small glimpse of God's promise to Abraham, that through him, all of the nations would be blessed, even a Jericho prostitute. In this story, we see God's mercy and salvation to Gentiles before the complete destruction of these people. But that's not the message that the Israelites need to hear. That's the one we gladly partake in. What does Israel need to hear and learn from Rahab? Why was it included in this Hebrew scripture? In chapter 1, Joshua records God's speech, which highlights the necessity and the grace of doing all of the law of Moses, Right? This is very important. We'll see it actually throughout the book of Joshua if you keep reading. He goes as far as to say that success and prosperity will come from being careful to do all the law of Moses. Israel understands authority. It understands that law keeping is foundational to a successful relationship with Yahweh, their Lord. They know that the law should be on their lips. It should be something that they talk about regularly. It should be something that they meditate on. It should be something that they put on their doorposts, and their gates, on their hands, on the frontlets of their eyes. You know this stuff. They understand the sweetness of God's word, the importance of his law. But what did Rahab have? Think about her. Uh, you think that she had Bible verses on the doors of her hotel? you think in the nightstand next to the beds were these verses telling them that they ought to obey Yahweh? Do you think she knew the Hebrew scriptures and that she meditated on them day and night? Rahab didn't have any of that stuff, but she believed God. The second thing I want to point out, Joshua chapter 2 shows us the necessity and importance of faith. Rahab's declaration to the Hebrew spies is absolutely astounding. She had heard of the God of Israel. So did all the people of Jericho, by the way. But she knew his name. She was familiar with his wonderful acts. She recounts how Yahweh had delivered his people from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. She understood and and restated how Yahweh had devoted the kingdoms of Sihon and Og to destruction. She understood that the God was to be feared and not in a way that says, I need to get as far away from him as possible, but rather, she was one who hoped in this God. At the center of this chapter, at the center of her speech, is the declaration at the end of verse 11. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. In other words, she says, the Lord God Yahweh, the Lord is one. She is using language that shows that she understands that Yahweh is not one good God among many, but that he alone is the true and living God. There's no one else like him. She is declaring her faith in God. and This is the greatest. It's not just a faith that presents itself in words. She would get along well with James. She gets it. Rahab hid the spies. She distracted and sent the guards out in a wild goose chase. She pleads for salvation for her family, trusting that God will be merciful and able to save. She does not report the spies either to the king. She provides a way of escape by the rope over the wall. And she instructs the spies so that they will live and hide in the hills. I mean, Rahab's got some real works to back up her faith. This story was not only known in national Israel, it was known by those who had ever experienced the saving power of Jesus thousands of years later. In the book of Hebrews, as Jordan read to us this morning, list of those who had faith, Rahab is known for her works. In other words, legitimizing her faith, saying that that was what was at the center. She had experienced God, responded in repentance and faith, and worked it out by obedience, by hiding the spies and being kind to these spies. It says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Our brother and pastor friend James again said something like this even more direct in James 2.25. He says, And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by the works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Rahab's faith was, was real it was anchored in the god of israel and despite her sinful and wicked lifestyle and despite the fact that she didn't even know the law she trusted the one true god the lord yahweh and yahweh delivers yahweh saves i think the spies were dumbfounded when they heard rahab's words but i think that the nation who knows the high importance of law keeping were also dumbfounded when they saw the faith of Rahab. The people of Israel had the same type of proud, self-justifying hearts that you and I have today. The same ones that think that somehow if we do the right things, that's actually what saves us. You can guarantee that there were pockets of people in Israel furious that God would grant a prostitute like Rahab to be saved. Jonah was this type of a person. You know the story. He knew that God would be kind and merciful to Nineveh, and he didn't want them to be saved. He wanted them to get what they deserved because they, because that seemed to be just to him, at least in his understanding. He had done so much of the right stuff his whole life. Why would it be that God would save those from Nineveh? How could he do such a thing? Yet the people of Nineveh repent, and they believe the truth and are saved. You also know the story of the older brother, the story of the prodigal son, where the older brother is very angry that the younger brother goes away, squanders all of his life in lawlessness, and in faith he comes back to the Father. He comes back and the Father accepts him. The older brother is furious that this kind of is the way that his righteousness seems not to count for anything, that the older brother's stuff that he did didn't matter. And what about the Pharisee in Luke 7? A sinful woman comes to wash the feet of Jesus and with her tears and her hair with costly ointment, she anoints the Savior. And the Pharisee pompously judges her and her sinfulness and concludes that she does not deserve to be in the presence of holy men like him. But Jesus responds by declaring her works of faith as better works than anyone else in the room. And he declares that she loved him much and he forgives her. God's people, me and you, God's people need to understand that true faith is at the center of their relationship with God. Lest you think that law-keeping comes first, then we get the stuff afterwards, God's goodness. Let's make sure we get this straight. Law-keeping comes out of a faith and love for God that he began in the first place. Don't think that your law keeping, I don't know, your Bible memory or your daily reading plan or your works or your specific political affiliations, that that will qualify you somehow for a relationship with Yahweh. If you are a true Christian, then you know that Ephesians 2 is right. You know that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, a child of wrath, unresponsive. God, only God, who is rich in mercy could make us alive, giving us faith to trust him and him alone. Joshua 2 shows us the necessity and importance of faith. So, So here we are. We sit at a very different time and place than Rahab did, obviously, but the truth hasn't changed one bit. The truth is just as relevant for me and you right now. Our God is still merciful. Praise him. Let us glory in the God of mercy. But it's also still true that at the center of relationship with God is true faith. This is not a faith of declaration only. It is a faith that works. We see the other language that Jesus said, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. That same central issue of loving, trusting God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that works itself out in worship and loving our neighbor as ourselves, Friend, if you are here today or watching, obviously you're not here today. If you're watching this today or maybe later on, and you know you've done a lot of really bad stuff, or stuff that you're like, yeah, I don't know if God can really accept me. I just want to show you and remember and remind you that God took a Jericho prostitute, a wicked woman, far from God, not brought near, way out there in need of forgiveness and salvation and made her his own. Jesus Christ lived and died so that wicked sinners might see the Father's glory in himself and be able to have salvation and a relationship restored that they were meant to have in him. This is the beauty of the gospel. He is more powerful than your sin and he alone can rescue you. You can never do enough good stuff or bring yourself to church enough times to somehow make him happy with your works. You can never redeem yourself. You need a Savior. And I tell you today that the Savior is not the people around us or the government. The Savior is Jesus Christ the Lord, the one that we find here in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus' words in his first sermons were repent and believe the gospel. A relationship with God where we are forgiven and made his child in an only, possibly, only possible by fully trusting in Jesus alone to save you. Brothers and sisters, remember that your law-keeping and your wonderful work of God in your life is not your own. It is the fruitful work of the Holy Spirit's regeneration to make you his own. And now by his grace and in Christ we continue to obey We need the renewing of the spirit of our mind by the Holy Spirit, continuing to kill or put to death or mortify the sins of the body. But going forward in great grace, love, choosing over and over again to obey our Lord and Savior. Don't slip into this pharisaical belief that you don't deserve what the rest of the children of wrath deserve. Remember who we are. This passage should spur us on to true worship and again repent and believe the gospel. We must trust uh, and obey over and over again. I'm not saying we get resaved. No, no, no. I'm talking about a daily walk as we realize our own sin before him and we repent of that. We don't want any of that. We we would confess that to him relying on him to put those deeds to death, trying with all the gumption and might that he has given to us through his Holy Spirit's work to put those things away and to obey and love in worship to him and love those that are around us. I'm not talking again about losing our salvation. I'm talking about trusting God day after day after day. The story of Rahab isn't just a good story, although it is. Uh, it's, its purpose isn't just to entertain us although it certainly could be a quite an entertaining thriller if we saw it. On the surface, you and I can see it. The story is to give confidence to Israel that God will deliver his people. But that's not the only thing that's going on here. It also shows us that the very beginning of the conquest, that Yahweh's people are not only those who have Jewish blood. He is merciful to save from every kindred tribe people, and nation. And at the very center of our response to him is not the legalistic law-keeping that we might think somehow in religion would save us, but rather, it is faith in God. It is the faith in this God alone over all other gods. It is faith that acts. It is faith that declares its loyalty and love for Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And for us, the perfection of God clothed in human flesh is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so as we close up Joshua 2 and we start to think this through, we're thankful and we bless God for his salvation for us. And we look at this and we realize that the very center is not law-keeping. Rather, we realize that it's God's grace to us in his profound act through his Holy Spirit to make us aware and alive and to respond in faith not just believing about God. The rest of the Jericho people believed about God. They believed that he was real. They were scared of him. But Rahab instead calls out for deliverance and acts kindly and saves others and very much imitates God because of her great, the gratitude that she has now experienced. In the love of God, now she, by, by her gratitude, experiences and lives it out by loving these others. So let's use this, this beautiful story this intriguing story to remind us of who we are and, and what God is gonna do in his deliverance of us and the world around us. We trust him completely and we look forward to the things that he will do. This is not only the God of Rahab, but he is the God of here at Cornerstone Bible Church in 2020. Although it seems so far removed from some sort of biblical proportion, this is what God is doing. He is no different today than he was then. He is immutable, he does not change. He is doing his will continually and he will bring it to fruition. Therefore, let us learn from Rahab, have this faith and love in the way that she did as well. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this great grace that you've shown us to even your servant Rahab. It seems, at least humanly, to say something like that would be sacrilegious, but God, it's not. You chose to take wicked, hateful people rebellious traitors who hated you and made us sons and daughters. Lord, you are a merciful, kind, gracious Savior to do this work. But Lord, we also learn at the heart of this, response is not one of more law-keeping. Lord, that comes out of gratitude for the truth, the center of what you've done. And as we believe and trust you, Lord, you do this work consistently in us through your Holy Spirit's first work in us. We thank you and praise you and ask that we would live our lives out as James has taught us to, that we would do so in obedience and love. Lord, I cannot do this work. The elders cannot do this work. It is only you through your Spirit's work in the Word in our hearts to change us to be more like Christ. We thank you for what you will do and you ask for more. Please, Lord, make us holy. Make us to continually shine forth the love of Christ to our neighbors that they too might know Jesus Christ and like Rahab, would be rescued from their sure judgment. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.